Welcome to Best in Show, the podcast that looks at the best episode of each TV series I own in its entirety, based on the voting of IMDb users. Every two weeks, we release a new episode with rotating guest hosts. And this time around, we have some returning guests who we last heard in the discussion of Murder, She Wrote, Don and Nick Simonson. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for having us again. We're back again. <laughs> so this time we are looking at Seinfeld, Season 4, Episode 11, The Contest. This is one that managed to get a bit of attention and a bit of conversation the first time it came out. Because it was really pushing the standards and practices. Uh, if you pay attention to the dialogue during the show, the episode is about something that they can't actually name in broadcast television. Which is funny because you look at TV now compared to then, the standards. Very different. Yeah, standards and practices have had to back off just so the major networks can still compete with cable. So that just more things are coming through. Back then, more than 13 channels worth watching was still relatively new. Right, there was still... Way fewer channels back then. That's way before you. <laughs> yeah, this, this episode was copyright 1992, so we're, we're looking at the era when most people had more than 13 channels, but it wasn't, you know, here's some other minor networks trying to compete with the major networks. They were mostly specialty channels. And if you had a lot of channels, it was because you had satellite TV. Yeah. And I think we had a few with the local cable provider, but even then the extra channels were... Actually, I don't even know if the Gulf Channel was out yet at this point, but it was a lot of things like that where it's, here's your sports racing channel, here's your sci-fi channel, here's your sports in general. And CNN was, I think, the only news channel. Yeah, I think for dedicated, at least, at least available to those of us in the Canadian markets. Yes. Yeah. There might have been more in the States, but we didn't have them here. So yeah, we had the major networks, there's PBS, or the begging channel, as my friends like to call it. <laughs> begging for money, please. Yeah, you know, rather than give you 10 minutes of commercials during your show, they give you 10 minutes of please send us money so we don't give you commercials. But we'll send you a bag. <laughs> yeah, and a, <clears throat> and a mug. All right, but no, this one, uh, essentially, there's the series in general is about four friends in New York. It was billed as a show about nothing. And I wouldn't say it's about nothing. It was about four people who don't quite fit in society, which allows them to sort of shine a light on some of the idiocy that's in our society and a lot of the customs and standards that we have for really no good reason other than tradition. <laughs> oh, it was, it's, but I'm not sure if they were supposed to be what age they were in those shows. They were there in their late 20s or mid-30s. Yeah, and that even might depend on the season, because it ran nine years. So I think they went from the, the late 20s to the late 30s. This is an interesting show. There, there's a story structure that was common in it that I found most impressive, which actually isn't as much in play with this one. Because this is a show where commonly the, the four characters would start off each having their own thread and their own story. So four stories that start off completely unrelated in the first five minutes. But the last three or four minutes, it all comes together and they end together in the same place at the same time. They're so funny. <laughs> yeah, this one, they almost start together and then split off and return. Yes. yes. Yeah, George's mother finds him in what should have been a very private moment. So I have no idea why he was doing it in his mother's house at three in the afternoon. The Glamour magazine. <laughs> yeah. But then 
Yeah, when he's talking about it with the others, so that's, you know, Jerry, Elaine, and Kramer, they decide to have a contest to see who can go the longest. Without doing a set activity. Yeah. Who is the master of their domain? Exactly. So at that point, they actually start off on the same path. And then for the most part, each of them has their own personal temptations as they go off on their own. And then pulls together in the end. Although one thing I would have to say, if you're familiar with these characters, I don't understand why anyone would take a bet with George Costanza where the winner is determined by the honor system. Exactly. George is very shady. Yeah, in most situations, if you're with your friends in a contest like this, no one would probably be honest, no matter how close you are with them. Like, that's why I found kind of interesting I did that. Because no one would ever be honest about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, especially with the woman involved. With the one female. Yeah. Which is weird. That is actually one thing that, that set this apart. It's odd. If you go back to the pilot episode, Elaine wasn't part of the show yet. And it didn't really work. I think instead of the Elaine, there was his parents there in the first couple episodes. Yeah, his parents were there, yeah. And then they just needed something else. The dynamic wasn't gelling. They didn't have the chemistry they wanted. And episode two, they introduced Elaine. And it worked, partly because of the way it was written and partly because Julia Louis-Dreyfus just stepped in and nailed it. She's hilarious. She is so funny. Yeah. Like, so this is a show, it started off with about three guys. And then they added a female cast member, but really it's four guys. Yeah. Like, She's one of the boys. Yeah, it, she just fits in with them so much more naturally than she does with the female friends we see with her on the show. Yeah. Yeah, it, you often see it through the series for reference to female friends that she never quite has the close friendship with any females. Yeah, and very few recurring female friends. I can think of friends where, you know, she's got this female friend that's introduced, but aside from maybe a two or three episode storyline, I don't remember any of them coming back a year later or two years later. The only female I can think of reoccurring would be her one actress roommate. That's the only mm -hmm. one I can think of. Yeah. And then when you're dealing with roommates, you're kind of stuck together, so it, it's easier to bring them back. But yeah. yeah, she is closer to these three than to anyone else. Yeah. And her comic timing is great. You can see there's a few times where even, you know, Jerry's got the script, he knows what's coming, and he's still on the verge of cracking up. <laughs> and she does that with him more than anyone else. Like, I love when you watch those comedies, like, and you see them just trying to hold it together. Yeah. yeah. When he was going off on that one rant about how he can't take the pressure, you could see him just trying not to break. Oh, it was bad. Yeah. Something's going to give. But then in the coffee shop, when she's coming back after John F. Kennedy Jr. talking about the cab ride, when she says, and I mean, I think I said Elaine, but I mean, who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he, actually, he just starts laughing. Jerry Seinfeld just can't hold it back anymore. Oh. She's, for female actresses, she still has really good comedic timing. Yeah. In everything she does. She is. Like, she had this, and it's... This show suffered when they limited her participation in some of the seasons to high pregnancies mm. so, i mean she is a physical actress like this one when you know she's at the gym and the receptionist there's you know i'll tell you that in a minute let me put these away and she basically leaps over the counter and hauls her back yeah one of her trademarks the whole series when she hits people yeah yeah she still hit them when she's like no way no get out yeah. <laughs> but yeah in this one so there were big like several weeks in a row where they had her 
you know, cross-legged on Jerry's couch with a pillow in front of her to hide her pregnancy. So things like that, which limited Persons. her. Because that's, that's not the style of comedy. Like, she can do it, but it's not her forte. Yeah. yeah. Same with Kramer. He's a very physical act. That character is very physical, too. Yeah. Yeah, Michael Richards, so. Yeah. Who was, yeah, he went from UHF. He was the only one that, that they were actually wrote a part for, for UHF, the, the Weird Al Yankovic movie. It was Stanley Spadowski. <laughs> Great name. Spadowski. Yeah. So, how did you guys see this episode for the first time? I think for myself, it was just randomly on TV. And I'd have to say probably when I was older, because when I was younger, when it was first airing, I, wasn't, I didn't enjoy Seinfeld. I think it's because at my age, I couldn't relate to it. And so, it was when I got into it in my 20s and 30s that I started watching it religiously. Um, I think for me is when you recorded it and I watched it. And even growing up, like she used, my mom used to always watch it. I can never relate to it, but now that I'm getting older, I think I can definitely relate to it more. But my first time watching it was um, at home when we recorded it. I think, I don't remember if I saw this one in the original broadcast or in the recent reruns. My parents actually started watching Seinfeld regularly in season one, so it was often on. It took me a few seasons before I started watching him as they came out. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, so I don't remember if this is one that I saw in the original broadcast or just in one of the reruns during the original broadcast run. Because this did go to syndication a few seasons in. Yes. And then I was watching it because this was... I think by the time that season nine was on the air, you could watch it like four times a night on different channels every weeknight. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was everywhere. Like a lot of the sitcoms now, though, it winds up one channel, it winds up everywhere a couple months later, so. Yeah. Well, that was, that was back in the day. This was, like I said, 1992, so five years before DVDs hit the market. Seven years before they had dual-layer DVDs that really got popular. Yeah. And owning TV wasn't really a thing on VHS, with the exception of a couple of sci-fi shows with diehard fandoms. Everything else you would have recorded yourself. Yeah. And even then, you'd tend to like maybe keep the highlights, but not complete seasons. The only shows that were really collected where you could commonly find people paying for the regular seasons were really Star Trek Babylon 5 and Doctor Who. So like three of the diehard sci-fi franchises are the ones that were verified as, yeah, those were profitable. And they kept making them. That's something you never really think about. Because now there's DVDs and TV shows everywhere. You never think, back in the day, how did they... But a lot of that didn't start until... Well, Star Trek was the first one to be profitable on DVD as a TV series, but it had that history. And when it started, it was two episodes per DVD. X-Files was the first to be a complete season set. Two per DVD, oh my word. Two per DVD for 25 bucks each. That's why I didn't have the original Star Trek on DVD when it came out. Oh my goodness, that's expensive. (laughs) Because I looked at that and go, okay, if I start this... I, I have enough of a collector's tendency. I knew if I start down this path, I'm gonna have the whole season or the whole series. <laughs> and as much as I really enjoy, like the original Star Trek, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, I wasn't willing to invest twelve hundred dollars in it. <laughs> That'd be worth some good money though now. Yeah, yeah. So it was actually X Files was the first series to successfully come out. Actually, the first one on the market with a complete series box set. And they were making up the price. This was 150 bucks for a complete season. <laughs> but it seemed like a steal, because movies, if they had bonus features, they were 35 and up. 
at the time. Right? No bonus features. Well, then you're looking at still 25. There were no like four and five dollar DVD bins. <laughs> Not for a few years, and even then, those were public domain movies. And then your next thing was probably going to a video store and getting a used copy. Yeah, <laughs> and that's actually remember I stopped renting TV or renting from video stores because of DVDs because it was when it first came out. I was tired of getting scratched and unplayable DVDs that I rented. So I just, I couldn't watch the things I brought home to watch. Oh, movie stores. (laughs) Yeah. Back in the day when they were common, let alone. And I remember there was one growing up where we lived in Sherrod Park, Jumbo. Yep. And it was seriously the size of a grocery store. Mm -hmm. Because it was in an old grocery store and it was a huge video store. Yep, and you'd have, like, they'd have 30 copies of some terrible movie. Yep. <laughs> and 10 copies of the new ones, but you could always find something. And I, I remember trying to rent from there and reserving things in advance and not getting them because it was two forty nine a night for rental and $0.25 cents a night for late fees. So there was no, even if you wanted it for a week, there's no incentive to say that because it was cheaper yeah. to get the late fees than the rentals. So different now. The biggest movie store I remember is like the movie gallery. I remember there's one of those by my house. I remember we spoiled it with my grandma. And now I remember that thing disappeared and it was movie gallery left, then Blockbuster left, and then mm-hmm. HMV's out the door and then Yeah. But HMV's getting replaced with some company from Ontario. Sun Yeah. And they're gonna be selling like records and tapes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they might have bought out the spaces, but yeah, the HMV chain. Let's go. It is. End of an era. Mm-hmm. But it, it's been coming because now people are shifting from physical media to digital. Yes. Just, it's been going yeah. down for a pretty long time, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's just been eroding, and now it's at the point where it's not worth keeping things in stock. But I think going to the digital is what kept series, is keeping series like Seinfeld going, is that it's introducing it to a whole new audience. It is that, and Netflix is also changing the way TV is made because they're. But Netflix still doesn't have Seinfeld, even though Jerry Mm. Seinfeld just signed a contract with them for a hundred million dollars. Yeah, at least not in Canada, because it's the way Netflix works is it it makes deals with the content owners, and I don't remember who owns it, but it's there's no Universal product anymore because they don't Mm -hmm. Universal isn't licensed for Canada, but if you go to the states, you can still find them there. So some things are made available, some things are not. And it really depends on, you know, because Netflix negotiates with the content providers for the titles and is it worth what they're asking for the content? Can they agree on a price? That's what it boils down to. American Netflix is so much better. hundred times better. Yeah, they've got double the content we've got, so. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of the newer shows, too. They do, More but... international programs as well. That's true. Uh, if I... I'm... I know U.S. Netflix has more than Canadian, but I don't typically gripe about it because Canadian Netflix is still adding stuff I want to watch faster than I can make time to watch it. So, yeah, you know, it's not like I don't have something to watch on it. And even the U.S. Netflix is shrinking because now people see the value in it and everyone's trying to do their own thing. So instead of being the only spot, now it's got competition and people are crawling Mm -hmm. out on their own. Yeah, there's another company coming out like Mm -hmm. Netflix in the States, mm-hmm. and they don't think it'll be up in Canada for a while. I think YouTube is getting a channel like Netflix. Yeah. But it's not coming up to Canada yet because of our internet providers like Shaw and such. Well, yeah. part. 
No, yeah, and then there's Show Me and Crave and Hulu and. Didn't Show Me? That's not a thing anymore, is it? Show, show Me. Is... Yeah, it, they tried. It's. What was Show, was it show Me Shaw? That Shaw's company. Mm-hmm. It's Crackle yeah. TV. It's Telus, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. I know Show Me. That was all over at Big Brother and stuff and advertising, and then I think I think it's gone. I think it kind of fell off a little bit of a cliff, and no one no one ever came back. Yeah. Hulu's good. Mm-hmm. But Hulu's only American, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it is, Hulu's probably Netflix's biggest competitor in the U.S. So, anyway, so, yeah, back to Seinfeld. So that's, <laughs> yeah, so I guess this is probably a good one for Nick, because we always like to talk about whether or not the, these best episodes of the series are good first episodes to watch. Yes, 100%. This makes me, after watching this again, it makes me want to go back and like, watch more episodes. Because when you want, watch an episode like this, you can like, relate back to it, and like, you think it's funny, it makes you like, interested in watching more of them. So. Yes, this yeah. definitely. Okay. Yeah, I actually. In terms, of, is it representative of the series as a whole? Yes, I answer uh, that one. I, don't. I think it is because it's them being in an awkward moment. They always seem yeah. to be stuck in awkward moments. Um, interacting, like if you go to the Bubble Boy, that's awkward. Um, one of my favorite episodes is when they go to the Hamptons, and the lady walks in on George after he just came out of the ocean. So that's awkward. Yeah, yeah. significant shrinkage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So that's why I don't think I could have a favorite because they're all so funny. Yeah, and it's, I would agree. It's, there's a couple minor differences. I would say that this, like I said, aside from the fact that they sort of start from the same point in this episode instead of four different points, you get a feel for the structure because after that they are doing their own thing. Often they're just... They seem entirely unrelated until the last couple of minutes, mm-hmm. but they pull it off. And this pushes standards and practices well, quite a bit harder than the episodes that came before it. But once they got away with this one, and they realized, oh, we can do it, and we've got Larry David writing it, who is Jerry Seinfeld's real-life friend and the inspiration for the George Costanza character. He has since gone on to do Curb Your Enthusiasm. Tom Chirone has directed this at a pile of other Seinfelds. Right. Yeah. So they were a couple of regulars put this together, and you know not only did they get it by standards of practices, it was a big hit with the audiences, and they said, okay, you know we could kind of take the gloves off a bit and push boundaries a little bit more. The only thing that stands out to me for this episode compared to a lot is sometimes George in some episodes can get he just grates on your nerves. You're just like oh, and this yeah. one he's funny but not irritating at all. Yeah, and in this one it's because. Like I said, apart from when and where it happened, <laughs> you know, it is something pretty natural for him to be doing here. Yes. Right. Again, I still question your mother's house. But when you see the other episodes and you see how, how often he's at their house, I think it ties in. But yeah, aside from that, yeah, I think you can watch this and it's not, you know, there's some episodes where you watch it. One of the ones that listeners have heard already is our discussion of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Inner Light. It's a great episode, but it does not prepare you in any way, shape, or form for what you're going to see in the other episodes. It's kind of its own thing that could have been plugged into almost any sci-fi show. This is very much a Seinfeld. Oh, very much a Seinfeld recipe. It had the recipe. Yeah. Yeah. This is the one where the world at large took notice. The show had fans before it. But there was a big rating spike after this happened. This is where the water cooler talk went. Do you know what they pulled off yesterday? Do you know what it was about? 
and it drove the ratings, and that's when it went from basically a moderate hit to huge. As far as the writers were concerned, they found that like creatively, they f- they felt it gelled earlier on with the episode in the Chinese restaurant. Really? Yeah, because that's when they realized, like, yeah, they can really take something so mundane and make it work for the full 24 minutes. That's when they felt like they knew this is what our show is. A show about nothing. Yeah, and they took it from there, whereas, you know, the contest, that's when the audiences in general went, oh, that's what the show is, and started to appreciate it. Yeah, the, the Chinese restaurant one really is a, rest- a show about nothing. It's just about them waiting for a table. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's 24 minutes of them. Waiting for a just table. what they're doing, waiting to sit down. Well, it worked, I guess. But it is because I remember watching it, and especially now, you can really relate to it. Like, the conversations they're having, they're waiting. And when you're starving, you're so hungry, and you start to get hangry. Yeah. <laughs> the desperation. Yeah. Plus, yeah, good guest cast on that one, even if it was just the one guy calling their name. <laughs> yeah. So, one of the other things we like to talk about is... Does this have any messages, morals, and meanings? <laughs> um. Lock the door. Mm-hmm. Or maybe just not in mom's house. Yeah, I'll probably go with the not in the mom's house thing. I don't quite know if there's like an underlying moral in this. Yeah. And there generally isn't in Seinfeld. I mean, those of you who've seen the series finale know that the creators know these are not nice people. They're entertaining people, but they're not nice people. What's interesting, I think, is when you see these old shows compared to now, you couldn't put this episode out, I think, created now, especially with the viewing of the naked woman across the street. And just, they don't demean her. They're not talking down about her. But I don't think you could get away with that now. No. I don't think you could. Yeah, it's, I mean, all they, all you know about her is really, she's beautiful. She's naked. A lot. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And... Apparently she hit it off with Kramer. Yeah. I think for first time watchers like like Nicholas, you have to start watching the episodes where you see the other characters, like mm-hmm. Newman and his parents. Yeah. And you see them oh they're they're all so funny together. Yeah. Well and George's dad wasn't in this one. They run him off as being in Chicago. He might have been tied up with something, because that's his dad is played by Jerry Stiller, who has a huge career in his own right. Next generation the, the most immediate connection you have is probably Ben Stiller's dad. Yeah. And yeah. he was on King of Queens? And I don't yeah. know if that was at the same time as this show was on. I think it was the next season. I think there, okay. I think they, there wasn't overlap, but there wasn't a big gap either. It, they ran almost one right into the other. And then there was when George got engaged, and then they ended up killing her off because the dynamic wasn't there. Yeah. And in... In a way that I don't think I've ever seen anyone die on TV. Aside not from on Susan. a comedy. Not a comedy like that where it's just... Yeah. And it's, I mean, they've had people die, but even like that method of killing. Not even in... I have how many hundreds of episodes of detective shows? Nothing Nobody's like died like that. I don't want to spoil it here, but... But then we all know somebody like cheap like George. Yeah. We all know. That's ultimately the cause of death is she was engaged to a cheapskate. <laughs> and just, little did he know she was worth millions and millions of dollars yeah and just the way it it's just the way that that manifests in her death is the one that I don't think you can see coming 
Maybe early on in that episode, you know something's going on, but you don't no. you don't see it coming. But I think, I mean, this is the one out of like nine seasons worth of shows, I believe, or eleven seasons. That this was on for about a decade. This came out at number one. I think part of it is because the fact that they could push the standards and practices so hard gave it a little bit of a boost because it really is something we've never seen before. And they stuck to the recipe. Nobody got married. There was no kids involved or introduced. They stuck to the recipe that worked. Yeah. Because every show seems to die off when they introduce a baby to the friends. Big Bang Theory's eventually going to... So they figure that's Mm -hmm. when shows die. Yeah, that's that. Some of them are the jump the shark moments. They've got their, the patron saint of the website is Yelp. There's a guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, but they brought him in for Murphy Brown when it started going downhill. Mm-hmm. Right, same with uh, Barry Van Dyke. Before Diagnosis Murder, Battlestar Galactica had been shut down because it was too expensive, but they wanted to up the episode count to hint syndication. They bring it back for a super cheap Galactica 1980 season starring Barry Van Dyke. Airwolf lasted three seasons, went off the air because they. You know, it wasn't profitable. They, um, there was, like, alcoholism with the main lead. Oh. Wanted to get the numbers for syndication. They brought it back starring Barry Van Dyke. Oh, <laughs> oh my word. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so old. <laughs> yeah, so Nick Airwolf is a... It, it's a decent show about a helicopter co-starring Ernest Borgnine. Probably best remembered these days for its theme song. Airwolf. Yeah, there there are people who know Airwolf solely by the theme song these days. I'll have to look that up then. (laughs) But I don't know if there's really much else to say about it, because this is one it's not a deep episode and Seinfeld often wasn't. Like they they shine a spotlight on things that don't quite work in society or things that are totally arbitrary in society at times. But that's not what this is about. Even the writers themselves weren't as happy with this as they were with other episodes because so many laughs were cheap and easy to get. It wasn't as challenging to write mm. as some of their other episodes. Like at, From a story structure perspective, I would say Seinfeld was probably the best sitcom in history because the way they managed to blend those threads together made the story beats work. And mm. yeah, yeah, there's nothing even to this day I think that can quite compete with Seinfeld. Like, there's sitcoms that like were obviously I think, made to compete with it, but nothing beats it or ties with it, I think, in the way it relates to society. It's a big thing with Seinfeld, though. I think that's why a lot of people like it, because, like, through this episode, people think, oh, I have a group of friends that, like, we'd be like that, right? I think a lot of people relate to the characters and, like, their friends and stuff. And there's not really much shows that, like, for example, Big Bang Theory is the best one I can think of. Nobody really has a super, super, super smart friend like that, and then they have a couple of idiots who hang around with them, right? Like, most people don't quite have that. But with Seinfeld, I think the way it worked is, like, everyone could relate back to the characters, so I think it was a big thing with it. I think the yeah. next most relatable group for TV shows would be Sex in the City. I think as your four characters, everyone can be like relate to one character in Seinfeld, and then the next group would be Sex in the City. I don't know if you watched Sex in the City. I tried once. It wasn't for me. So I've watched both, and so I think that's the next most relatable, especially for women. You would relate to that going, oh, we all have a friend like one of those four women. Yeah, and that's what I've heard that the, the female component of the audience demographic, Sex in the City, nailed rather yeah. beautifully. Yeah. I mean, for me, like I said, it, it didn't connect, but... That's why there's lots of TV shows out there for everybody. Yep. Maybe we'll have to get him to watch a few more episodes and then <laughs> see what you think. I definitely uh, will probably watch more episodes, I think, if it's on TV. Like, 
I think I'm at the point where like I like it, but not enough to go and actively search. But if I'm on TV and there's nothing else to watch, I can watch it. Because this episode definitely interests me. Because before I thought of Seinfeld as a show, like I was like, it's an older show, whatever. I don't want to watch something that's fuzzy on TV. But as I'm older now, I think I can relate to the episodes more. And I understand what's going on more. Because even a couple of years ago, I would have no idea what's going on in those episodes. So, yeah. I think you need to watch two with Newman. Yeah, there's a few elements that... Lloyd Braun. You need more background. It's like any show. It's like you understand more what's going on if you have more of the background. I like the, what's happening like way far back. So yeah, yeah, definitely enjoyable though. Happy. Okay. All right. So I'm just gonna thank Don and Nick for joining us once again. Thank you for having us. Thank you again. I enjoyed it. All right. And for those at home, yeah, join us again. And thank you for listening. <laughs>